Welcome to Fernway Insights, where prominent leaders and influencers shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector discuss topics that are critical for executives, boards, and investors. Fernway Insights is brought to you by Fernway Group, a firm focused on working with industrial companies to make them unrivaled segment of one leaders. To learn more about Fernway Group, please visit our website at fernway.com. Hi, this is Nidhi Arora, Vice President at Fernway Group. Welcome to another episode of Fernway Insights. As we continue with our theme of value creation and transformation in industrial sector, our guest today is Ms. Megan Jude, Chairman of the Board at Ideal Industries. Megan is a speaker, author, and family business and corporate governance advocate. She has a deep understanding of what helps family businesses thrive and survive and makes it her mission to share this know-how with the family business community. The enthusiastic champion for family businesses draws on her experience as a fourth-generation leader and chairman of the board at Ideal Industries, a 105-year-old family business in its fifth generation of ownership. Megan has vast experience speaking and moderating events and as a panelist, podcaster, and keynote speaker. The published author sits on the editorial board and as a contributor to NACD Private Company Directorship, contributes and sits on the editorial board for Family Business Magazine and writes for Private Director and Family Business Magazine and other publications. Her consultant work focuses on family and corporate governance. Megan served as the director of the Family Business Center at St. Joseph University and founded the Lodi's Forum, a peer group for female board chairs, vice chairs, and lead directors. It is no surprise that Megan today is a highly sought-after public speaker, published author, and transformational leader. With that, Megan, welcome to our podcast. Very excited to have you here and look forward to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor and pleasure to speak with you today. Perfect. So, Megan, let's start by talking about Ideal Industries, right? It is no news that it is one of the most successful family-owned business. Tell us a bit about the company and, and what it does. So, Ideal Industries was founded by my great-grandfather, J. Walter Becker, in 1916, and he started with one product, which is a commutator stone, which still is used today, although it's not our our most well-selling product anymore. It's something that is still uh, very is still useful in the marketplace. So the company's evolved, obviously, over 105 years, and we're now focused in a manufacturing company focused in the infrastructure, lighting, and electrical spaces. And we're really most well-known for ideal industries or an electric in the electrical space for serving uh, electricians. You and your family, like you said, you are a 105 years old company. The company must have seen multiple economic crises, right? How was COVID-19 any different, if at all, for ideal industries? COVID was challenging. We have operations globally. So we have operations in China, the UK, Canada, multiple sites in the US and New Zealand all of which, as you recall in the news, were highly affected by COVID-19. 
So when it first came out, um, you know, obviously China was hit hardest, earliest, but then you just kind of saw the wave go through uh, all the various countries. And the UK obviously has really struggled with containing the virus and getting people back to work full time. So I would say that um, being an essential business in the manufacturing space, we really struggled with ensuring that our employees were safe and that they could come to work. And our philosophy is a family business, which is not unique in the family business space, is to really try to put employees first. And so although we didn't lay anybody off due to COVID, we really did uh, struggle with the fact that we had all the cost and, you know, reduced sales, uh, certainly in uh, 2020. So it's been, um, I would say it was a challenge. And also, I think, you know, in most economic events, it was fairly protracted. And, and also there was this element of the unknown. When you look back at 2008, you kind of you saw what happened, you knew why, and you knew that the economy was going to recover. And certainly in 2020, we thought it, or I certainly thought it was going to be over in three months. And here we are two years later. So there was this element of unknown and not knowing, you know, how far you have to cut back, how, how you need to pivot. And uh, now, of course, we're seeing, you know, with the, the global shutdown in 2020, we're running into very significant supply chain issues, unlike, you know, not unlike everybody else. Obviously, it's an issue for all. And so it's, it's, been, uh, it's been quite interesting. One of the advantages that we have is that um, we're really in the 80s when there was this big trend to offshore a lot of our manufacturing, a lot of manufacturing in the U.S., and we lost subsequently a lot of that talent and expertise in the United States. What was lucky for us is that we had always had a philosophy of manufacturing products near our customers. And so although we do have operations in China, it's to serve our customers in China. And same with you know, operations uh, around the globe. So although we have had supply chain issues like everybody, it hasn't been as catastrophic as, as many. So, you know. Like all businesses in COVID, we had some winners and losers. But given that we had a, um, you know, we had this philosophy of not laying off our employees due to COVID, we've really were able to pivot quite quickly or very early in this year when things kind of, you know, the lights turned on everywhere and we started uh, serving, you know, we had such uh, demands in the marketplace. Uh, we were able to deliver effectively, at least with our, our talent side. You know, supplies, hard to manufacture stuff if you don't have, have the materials, but it was an interesting journey, certainly, and certainly very different than previous uh, economic challenges we've seen. Got it. And Megan, some of these challenges that you mentioned, right, were a common theme across a lot of industrial companies. We've, we've heard these before. For example, like you said, like keeping employees safe for the essential businesses, the supply chain disruptions, right? And at the same time, you've also been vocal about like how typically family businesses or uh, private companies do tend to overperform, outperform public uh, public companies, right? Did you see any of those like you know advantages play out during the COVID times as well, especially when dealing with the same type of challenges? I'd say that certainly from what I've seen and heard. 
family businesses because they uh, were able to wait out 2020 with their staff, you know, their employees intact and their their businesses intact. They were able to really pivot quite quickly in um, in 2021. And so you could see them having that advantage. They didn't, you know, lay off 50% of their employees to keep the bottom line whole. And so they were able to pivot and you know ramp up quite quickly. I also know a lot of this, a lot of family businesses did a lot of acquisitions in 2020 and 2021. It's an advantage if most family businesses don't carry significant debt. And so it means that you can you can be opportunistic and you see these uh, that's certainly one of our biggest growth period, uh, periods has been when everyone else kind of closes up shop and battens down the hatches, you know, we we get to be opportunistic on some of these businesses that come available. And certainly that was the case in, in 2008. We made quite a few acquisitions right around that period. Megan, if you think about like challenges, I mean, even before COVID, right? The industry, uh, the electrical industry has been seeing uh, many disruptions, right? If you talk about IoT, robotics, in energy storage, and so on and so forth, right? Energy efficiency. So how did that like play out or like how did that challenge the electrical industry and also like play out again for ideal industry industries in the context of being a family, family-owned business? I do worry sometimes that family businesses like in general are going to have a difficult challenge with meeting the new technologies that are up and um, and we're seeing more currently. I also think that um, a lot of family businesses have been slow to even adopt to kind of the digital trends that started you know 20 15, 20 years ago. And uh, some of them are being left behind or being, you know, competed out by people who either have more technical expertise or uh, just willing to invest more to kind of keep pace with the changing times. But one of the things that I find so fascinating, and I've run into a lot of family businesses that make these products that no one ever touches or thinks about, but are absolutely reliant on every day. So one of our biggest selling products, for example, is the wire nut, which everyone has in their homes. It's, it's, you know, it's connecting wires behind every switch or light fixture in your house. There's probably, you know, thousands in your home on an average home. And yet nobody thinks about it. Nobody talks about it. You know, it's just kind of, it helps you get about your day, but you don't think about it. And I've met a lot of family businesses who, you know, make the thing that goes in the thing. So one, one company I ran into makes soundproofing to go inside car doors. No one's thinking about who's manufacturing that, but those were real niches for family businesses. You know, they get to evolve into split places, places where it's specialized and it's not going to make, it's not what is, um, making the product sell. They're not focused on, they're working on, you know, uh, B2B environments and customers and someone else can worry about the digital and and, uh, technology and IoT and everything else. So I know that's a huge, I mean, family businesses, you know, spawn everything, but I think it's uh, kind of interesting that a lot of family businesses have found these niches that no one would even think to to disrupt or, or get involved with because it's not, 
you know, it's it's not where the massive dollars are. It's great livings for for people and creating real jobs for employees. But it's, I don't know. I think it's kind of fascinating to see some of those trends. Right, and, uh, and and so what's next, right? Like so, like you said, some of the family businesses have been slow to adopt to to these technology disruptions. But how can they catch up? Like these disruptions could become opportunities very well, right? Oh, believe me, I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about that. And one of the, I mean, it depends on if you're a B two B or B two C business, right? If you're B two B. It's really all about what family businesses are great at. It's, you know, relationships, quality, customer service. I mean, you can you can build such a tight relationship that it would be really hard for the company to, to separate. If you're a B2C business, I think obviously digital is really where it needs to go. And certainly um, in our electrical business, although we sell to distributors and big box stores, our end users are electricians. So, you know, we have to kind of, try to create that that pull and demand with that with those um, end users. So in terms of what's you know what's next or how do they catch up, I think it really depends on the kind of business that they're in and, and you know where their customers are. But I think that every business probably needs to be aware that an Amazon or Amazon like is going to see an opportunity in your space and try to take it. Um, and, you know, you can see that a lot in just some bit, some businesses that you would think would never have been disrupted, like the grocery store. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of surprising that uh, somebody, you know, a, a local grocery store, which has the customers, can provide, you know, has perishable products and, you know, has a footprint, has been disrupted into being you know, by Amazon and and other vendors who are trying to to get closer to the customer with convenience, not and uh, you know, kind of at your doorstep rather than having the bricks and mortar. We are going to see some businesses get disrupted, and certainly when you look at you know hotel chains, which have been a lot a lot of the hotel hotel chains that started were family businesses that have you know started with one you know hotel or motel and has expanded across the globe. But you're seeing a quite significant disruption with them with, you know, a different offering like Airbnb or VRBO, which is really, you know, putting an impingement on uh, some of their growth opportunities and, you know, creating challenges. So I think, you know, in the end, it's really about what are the core issues that your customers are dealing with and really trying to understand that to know whether or not you have the best offering that you can deliver and that you are thinking creatively about how to solve some of those uh, challenges and issues. Got it. Got it. Very interesting, Megan. Megan, I would like to switch topics now and talk about your journey so far. You've had an amazing uh, journey, right? Like, Talk us through your, your path to chairman, at Ideal, chairman of the board at Ideal Industries. So growing up in a family business of a manufacturing company in the Midwest that had only ever had male leaders and male family members working in the company, I grew up never really considering ideal as an option or serious option. It's just one of those things that, you know, I didn't have anybody coming before me that really saw this as an opportunity. And in fact, as a child, I remember my brother and I were sitting on the, the rug at my grandparents' house, you know, for Sunday dinner. We were playing before dinner time. 
and my dad and grandfather, my grandfather who had been CEO and chairman and my father who had been CEO and chairman were sitting there looking adoringly at my brother who's five playing trucks saying, you know, he's the next one. He's going to be it. And I, at seven, I was thought to myself, yeah, he is going to be it. Of course, it's going to be him. And so I never really considered myself kind of a, a, a successor, certainly at a young age. So growing up, I went to, to school and graduated from college with really no idea what I was going to do. But luckily, it was at a time when in the, just a very you know high growth period in our economy, and I was able to get a consulting job at one of the big five firms. And I ended up, I loved that job. It was fantastic. And so I did, you know, early career, did project management, was a business analyst and um, worked on very large IT installations on the project management and organizational change side, which was fun. And, you know, try, like I loved it. It was, a, a, you know, running around every day, trying to get people on board was, I loved that job. But it was, uh, I, during that tenure, I uh, met my husband, we got married, and it was at that point that I realized there were no women in this consulting firm between the ages of 30 and 45, like they had all disappeared. At the time that I joined, it was 50% women, 50% men, and then, you know, there's this was massive attrition of women during, uh, you know, and, you know, I kind of understood it because if you did want to have a family you would never knew where you were going to get posted from week to week. You were, you know, some people were on a plane every week. Some people would get the same, you know, have the same client for three years. Like you just never knew. And of course the hours were really not very conducive to actually ever seeing children awake. So I decided to uh, stay home for when I had my son, I was going to take a year off. I really wanted to be with the baby and was very excited about it. And I think I was holding a three week, my three week old at the time. And he, and my dad called me up and said, why don't you come, you know, work, work on this transition. We don't know how we're going to transition from the from third generation to the fourth. We're, you know, we, we, we know it's going to be very different than the transitions that had happened before because we didn't have family members working in the, in the company at the time. And I decided that I wanted, uh, I and I figured, why not? I had a three-week-old. There's nothing else to do. <laughs> not knowing that at six months, it's going to get a lot more challenging. But of course, you know, I'm first first time mom and very naive. And so I started working um, for Ideal and really focused on the governance side. So it's um, really trying to change the engagement that the fourth generation had and really trying to create an opportunity for the fifth generation to focus on the company in a different way and, and be introduced to it and build relationships with one another. This one of the concerns that I had, if the family wanted to remain family owned, we were missing an opportunity with the uh, business or with the fact that the parents, we didn't have any anybody's parents coming home and talking to them about the company. I grew up with Ideal as a sibling that I needed to compete with for time and attention. Like I was always, you know, it was always kind of a, a jousting match, but we were not going to have that for the fifth generation because we just didn't, we don't have those people who are there day to day. And so really started working on a, a education and development program for the fifth generation and trying to, I mean, these kids were all even, you know, five years old at the time. 
but making sure that they, every interaction that they had with ideal or the family was, you know, exciting and positive and compelling. So I did that for about 14 years. And during that time, I was named to the board of directors at ideal. I started chairing the nominating governance committee. And then, you know, what happened was our outside CEO at the time uh, really kind of identified that uh, identified me. He was like kind of my sponsor. And I find a lot of women who have had success over, you know, during their career, certainly at this time have had sponsors in a way that we wouldn't have been successful otherwise. And so this outside CEO kind of you know tapped me on the shoulder and said, I think you'd make a great chairman. I was like, really? Okay. I don't know. Sure. And so I worked with him for about eight years side by side really learning the business. I had a you know great background having just kind of grown up in it, but really learning the business, getting to know the teams, meeting, you know, going through all the facilities, really building that kind of muscle around corporate governance. And then in 2018 was named vice chairman and then 2020 was named chairman. Yes, that's right. 2020. Yeah. Well, it's a very inspiring mm-hmm. story for a lot of women leaders to make it. And, and Megan, you talked about that, how when you joined the company, you focused on governance and you focused a lot on shaping the fifth generation of leaders, right? Tell us about some of the initiatives you launched to to do that, to like increase the family engagement and to also like shape the next generation. I, I think what happened family business is that they like to do they like to do everything the way that it was done before. So they want to do a transition the way the previous transition did. They want to have family leaders the same way that they did in the past. And really coming in and assessing the situation, I realized that what had worked in the past, although had been it had been very effective, was not something that was going to be work for that fourth generation. It's not, we, you know, this is the generation that you go from siblings to cousins and second cousins. And, you know, people grew up very different lives. They had very different associations with ideal. Their parents had different, you know, different associations with ideal. And, you know, some were very enthusiastic and supportive and some maybe not so. And so, you know, all of that, when you look at, you know, family business, often people talk about legacies being this great thing, but a lot of times, a lot of prejudices or dislikes that somebody has, they pass those down to their children as well. So I felt like we needed to really uh, start from from scratch and look carefully at our governance and make sure that we were producing. We had a governance model that was inclusive and that we really were trying to create opportunities for people to get engaged kind of wherever they could. So one of the things that's different in the third generation, there was enough wealth that people you know, had a lot more free time than what existed in the fourth generation, certainly at, at that period. You know, people were working, they had jobs. We did a lot of stuff on the evenings and weekends to really, you know, support those people who were working full time, but still wanted to be engaged. And we also implemented a, a task force process so that although many family businesses address all of their governance matters in their family council, we felt that it was too difficult for some people to commit full time to the family, not full time, but, you know, commit formally to the family council, but still wanted to be included in their decision making process, you know, policy development or whatever else. So we came up with this model of a task force process so that 
people could come in for you know for for six weeks or three weeks or four phone calls you'll get fully apprised share their viewpoints and then kind of go back to their their daily lives so it was um that was a way in which we were able to incorporate all of the voices in the family or anybody who felt passionate about a topic either for or against it's good you want to know all these things and really end up delivering on a uh, you know delivering a a, a policy or, or program that was more inclusive and reflected more of the family's perspective the for the fifth generation we really felt that you when know, we had a fifth generation that were growing across, you know, three, growing up across three or four time zones in the U.S. Luckily, we're still in the U.S. and not all international, like some family businesses. But I felt that we really wanted to ensure that every time a the parents got together for a, a family meeting, that the kids had alternative programming. We would fly them all in. The company paid. So if you had a family council. Uh, meeting, you would bring in the kids as well. And so it became this um, very useful opportunity for them to, they just, it was like this quarterly pattern of, of course, you give up whatever you have scheduled that weekend and come to a family meeting. And and for them, the family meetings were babysitters or bouncy houses or adventure training. So leadership skills and um, team building and what's been so nice is that there we have a population of kids who, although they're you know second cousins or, or second cousins once removed, and in kind of any other non not business owning family, they wouldn't even ever have probably met. They are on uh, you know FaceTime every day or whatever new technology they're using, but they are, they're still, you know, even all through the pandemic when we couldn't get anybody together, they were on the phone every day talking or it's not the phone, but whatever the phone thing is. <laughs> and uh, and they're very close, which was, um, I'm so proud of because not everybody gets an opportunity to grow up like that with their, you know, second cousins and so we we get a chance of getting everybody together every year a couple of times, obviously for our, our ideal meetings. But then we actually have the fifth generation run a family camp for us. So they have to plan a weekend. We get about 20, 25 people to come up to. A, we have a cabin in northern Wisconsin that we all share. The kids plan the weekend, including baking logos, T-shirts, trophies, medals, ribbons, you know, the whole deal. And then they run um, a lot of activities over the weekend. So, you know, canoe races or scavenger hunts and things like that. And they have to work hard to collaborate and, um, you know, put together an agenda that's going to work for the weekend. And they have to work together to execute. And they also have to corral 25 people who'd rather, you know, sit on the dock or (laughs) do something else. So it's been, um, I think it's been a great opportunity for them. I think they learn a lot about how do you, how do you work together? They feel so important when they get on conference calls, when the, when the parents are getting on calls, talking about different matters. It's been a, a, a great, a great opportunity for them to show some leadership and for them to learn how hard it is to do group decision-making. Wow. Sounds like a lot of fun and exciting extended family interactions. So, maybe we've talked um, about governance and engagement uh, in family businesses, right? 
Uh, now, I would like to talk about a couple of other things that we've noticed at Fernbay for family businesses, right? And one of the things is the is the fact that sometimes family businesses struggle with getting access to the right talent and capabilities. And the electrical industry, like a lot of other industrial segments, has its own talent gap challenges too, right? Tell us. How have you managed to bridge the talent gap at at Ideal? You know, it is a challenge. I think that we've had, I mean, we have geographic challenges where uh, many of our manufacturing facilities are outside of uh, like a metropolitan area. And it's just kind of happened by, by chance, but it does make it more difficult to get executives to want to you know, relocate their families or or move. And so we have, uh, we actually have, a, even up to 10 years ago, we had a, a remote executive team, mostly because it doesn't matter where you live because you're always at some other facility doing something. So that's, I think, was a competitive advantage that we're not requiring people to relocate. And now, you know, uh, certainly during the pandemic, a lot of our executives have actually, you know, relocated to places even outside of Illinois because we've got so good at uh, remote working. So, and then when you look at the challenges in just the manufacturing space, it's difficult. You know, this is an expertise that has exited the country essentially. Uh, you know, when when everybody started offshoring, and we just lost that that pipeline of talent. So we have had, you know, we really work hard to make sure that. Our compensation and benefits are very helpful. We expect that if somebody retires with us after working a a career, that they can retire with a pension and a 401k, which will give them almost the exact same salary as, you know, of the last year that they worked at the company. And so we're really trying to, you know, create a benefits package, a culture and a, you know, career opportunities that I deal that allow people to, to really, you know, spend, spend their life working with us. But there is another talent gap that we are worried about. Um, and we actually have deployed resources for, and that's really a talent gap in our, and a, a skill gap actually in our end user market, which is electricians for our, for the ideal electric business. We have actually started a uh, annual electricians competition, which just which gets aired every year. Um, this year, it's on Fox Sports, and I think it just came out over the weekend. Um, when we usually get you know forty, fifty, sixty thousand electricians trying to compete to come to this weekend, where we pit them against each other to try to see you know who's the best electrician in the U.S. And it's been a, a really great. A great project. It gets uh, you know attracts people to the industry or the um, the trades in a way that maybe they wouldn't have. We do spend a lot of time um, working with guidance counselors and you know community colleges to try to let them know that there are alternative paths for a lot of the students who maybe not everybody should probably be sent off to college. If you can find a meaningful career and you love working with your hands, you should, you know, be in the trades. Those are, you know, great jobs. And um, we've actually changed our, our foundation at Ideal to focus solely on workforce development in the trades. And we're 
trying to attract more women and minorities into the trades, because that's something that, I mean, those are great jobs for anybody. And certainly a lot of those jobs require brains, not brawn. And so there's a, a lot of opportunity for people to find great careers there. And then lastly, we've been working with actually the Fernway Group and uh, a, a couple of people from McKinsey on trying to build a trades council and a foundation to tackle this broader issue of attracting um, uh, attracting people in to get into the trades. Uh, the reason this is such a big issue is that we have the average age of almost every tradesperson or trade in the country is 55. So that means that you know, we have 10 more years of you know this talent and expertise staying and you know helping our apprentices and early tradespeople, early career tradespeople, but we're going to be losing a lot of talent very soon. And it's really should be considered a national crisis. Um, if you think inflation is bad today, think about what it's going to take when you actually cannot get any tradesperson to come to your house unless you're paying, you know, the top premium dollar because they just have so much work they can say no to. So it is a concern. I actually was talking with somebody in uh, who's a, a, a home builder on a very large scale in the thousands of homes a year. And he said, you know, when he first started, he's kind of uh, entering retirement age now, but he said when he first started, he could build a house in three months. And he said, now it takes nine. And when you look at, you think about, okay, one house, no big deal, but you extend that across the millions of homes that are being built, you see that, you know, we are actually already seeing an impingement on our economic growth in these homes being built. And so I think there's a, I think this problem is going to get bigger and bigger. And so we're really working on many different fronts to try to make the trades look exciting through, you know, Ideal Nationals, which is the the competition we do to try to attract more people with the ideal foundation and to create more awareness now with this trades council and foundation we're working on as well. So there's a lot of work to do in this space, but it's a massive issue. And one of the things that we really want to do is make sure that, you know, we're working together with all of the other organizations and businesses who are trying to you know, tackle this issue because the problem is so big, there's no no need for any kind of competition. We just should all be working together. Some some really good initiatives there, but also some concerning stuff, like you said. Yes, <laughs> we should all be very concerned. Right, right. And you you mentioned culture, uh, Megan. So that's that's where I want to go next. Is the fact that sometimes family-owned businesses. They take a lot of pride in their culture, but it's always not easy to sustain that culture over generations, right? With Ideal now being in its fifth generation of leaders, how have you been able to do that uh, at your company? Well, it I mean, I agree it's difficult and also worrying, especially as a family business grows to having outside executives and you have less family presence there, you know, there's, there's a worry about the culture and cultural impact to that. But I would say that our founder, my great grandfather, J. Walter Becker had values and he actually was not a egotistical man and would never have called something ideal, except that uh, or his company ideal, except that he thought that ideal really represented 
the, his um, philosophy and culture he wanted to create. So he thought that if you had ideal relationships with your employees, customers, vendors, and community, that you know you would kind of everybody would prosper. And and that was really his goal. That not for for him to prosper on the backs of others or you know on, on the back of the community, but really that everybody is lifted up together. And I spent some time, and certainly when I got started getting more involved with the company and then, you know, I became vice chairman and then chairman, I, I spent some time really thinking a lot about culture. And I realized that under our current leadership, the uh, J. Walter Becker's values are, are lived every day. And I firmly believe that if he came back today and looked at this business, he wouldn't recognize the products, the buildings, the people. But if he spent time talking to them, he would say he would realize this was his company because those values, I mean, talk about a meaningful legacy. Those values are still living today. However, there's always more work to do. And we recognize as the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging conversation has really bubbled up uh, in our in our country. We want to be better. We also believe that we have some opportunities in the ESG space as well. So one of the things that we've been doing is really trying to put together programs to at least understand where we are at a baseline level and to then also assign executive sponsors to these programs, but then also have uh, you know reporting structure to the board. And so we've even changed our compensation committee on the board to really look at compensation, talent, and culture as well. Because, you know, compensation is like a very small piece of what you're trying to achieve when you, you know, run a business. And so really trying to expand that charter to tackle all of these major topics, I think, really helps then drive the importance through the rest of the organization. Great. So, Megan, we are almost towards the end. Uh, In closing, I would like to talk about some of your writing and your some of your writing and your work as an author right you've been a long time contributor and you also sit on the editorial boards of family business magazine and NACV private company uh, directorship tell us about uh, your most enjoyable work so far there so usually when i find myself writing it's usually cuz i woke up in the middle of the night all like feeling passionate about something. And in fact, a lot of the work that I've been doing recently is really around corporate governance because I also find that writing really helps me understand, it helps me understand myself. And it also helps me organize my thoughts in a way that's that's compelling. And so I have actually written a lot about corporate governance because it helps, you know, helps me learn about my job. But I've also really identified that that there are challenges with being a woman in leadership in the boardroom. And so I didn't ever, I've never thought of myself as a female team member. I've just thought of myself as a team member. And I, I really, really, I really started, you know, had some kind of gender awareness when I became uh, chairman because I was the only woman in the room and also the one of the youngest people in the room in fact, it was during that time that I started realizing that I didn't know any other female chairman. And so one of the things we haven't talked about yet is I actually started a peer group for female chairs, vice chairs, and lead directors to try to 
support them, you know, create a, a peer environment, but then also try to create some awareness of uh, how to how to be great at, at the chairman or, or in that board leadership role. You know, we've really learned a lot in that, and that's where I spend. I've been spending most of my time writing. But for me, I think family business, as well as supporting women in leadership roles in the boardroom, is something that I'm really passionate about. Certainly, family business is a noble cause, and I think having women in leadership roles in the boardroom it can be very transformational, not only for the work of the board, but also it's one of those very meaningful. Uh, things that you can do to really change the face of your organization. Fascinating and all really inspiring stuff, Megan. Thank you, Megan. It was a pleasure having you here today. Really thank you for making time for our podcast. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to speak to you. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fernway Insights. Please visit Fernway.com for more podcasts, publications, and events on developments shaping the industrial and industrial tech sector.